Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly decisions being made by our political leaders that impact the Black community. You ready? Let's do it. On this week's episode, we discuss some of the headlines from the week of October 25th, including conversion therapy being on its way to being banned in Canada. Studying systemic racism in prison risk assessments wins all party support. Christian Freeland's plan to build Canada back better. A video coming out of Calgary shows police manhandling a young woman. Philly is on fire after police shoot and kill Walter Wallace Jr. in front of his mom. And a deeper dive on the NHL and their inclusion efforts. And plenty more. To kick off our politics segment, we want to say congratulations to Marcy Ian on winning the federal by-election in Toronto Centre with 42% of the vote. Marcy was expected to win considering she ran in a safe liberal riding. Our hope is that on top of being a solid representative for her constituents, she'll sit at the cabinet table, as the former member did, to advocate on behalf of black Canadians, the middle class, and those working hard to join it. But did y'all take in that Annamy Paul placed second? There was a lot of enthusiasm for her, which I honestly didn't think would be so strong, so much so that in one week, for example, she was able to boost her support from 7% to 14%. One week. She eventually ended up securing 33% of the vote. What is she, a juggernaut? <laughs> she literally went from fourth to second place. Though she didn't win her seat, Annamie Paul has so much to offer Canada and the black community, so we look forward to her running in and winning her next election, wherever that may be. And no matter how you slice it, Monday was a damn good day for black Canadians. Conversion therapy is on its way to being banned in Canada, and it's exposed divisions in the Conservative Party. For those who don't know, conversion therapy is the practice of attempting to change an LGBTQ2 person's sexual identity to straight by emotionally and physically abusing the subject and associating the pain with the fact that the subject is LGBTQ2. For the record, the Canadian Psychological Association says, quote, there's no scientific evidence that conversion therapy works, but plenty of evidence that it causes harm to its subjects including anxiety, depression, negative self-image, feelings of personal failure, difficulty sustaining relationships, and sexual dysfunction, end quote. The American Psychiatric Association goes further, saying conversion therapy leads to, quote, self-destructive behavior since therapists' alignment with societal prejudices against homosexuality may reinforce self-hatred already experienced by the patient, end quote. Anyway, I digress. The bill passed easily by a vote of 308 to 7, but exposed divisions within the Conservative Party. O'Toole himself voted in favor of the bill, as did most Conservative MPs, 
but they worry the bill would outlaw conversations between parents and their children or counsel from religious leaders. It won't. Seven of his MPs voted against it, two abstained, and eight others made it clear they were only supporting it in hopes that it would be amended by the Commons Justice Committee. Oh, and the nine conservatives who don't believe gay people should exist? Andrew Scheer, the Republican who could have become PM, didn't even show up to the vote. MP Kathy Wagenthal shared her concern that it stops people from speaking out if they decide to transition, but later regret it, because people do that all the time, right? Derek Sloan thinks it will criminalize prayer. I won't even get into the other six. <laughs> By contrast, all liberal, NDP, Bloc Québécois, Green, and independent MPs who took part in the vote supported the bill. A number of liberal MPs in particular made a point of announcing that they were proudly voting in favor, as they should, while the NDP questioned the validity of the votes that came with qualifiers. <laughs> the fight against systemic racism in prisons has won all-party support. After a Globe and Mail investigation found correctional tools like inmate risk assessments are biased against Black and Indigenous people, the House of Commons Public Safety Committee said they're commissioning a study on the issue pronto, and apparently, all members of the committee, including the Conservatives, support it. The Globe investigation revealed that after accounting for variables like age, offense, severity, and criminal history, the risk assessments were biased against Black and Indigenous men. For those who don't know, risk assessments help determine how likely an inmate is to reoffend and play a significant role in determining prison placement, the programs and services inmates can access, and their chances of getting parole. The analysis of Correctional Service of Canada data found that black men were almost 24% more likely to end up with the worst security classification compared with white men. When it came to indigenous men, they were 30% more likely to get the worst score for reintegration potential than white men. All this despite the fact that black and indigenous men make up only 4% and 5% of the population respectively, and the fact that both groups were less likely to reoffend than whites. The Supreme Court ruled in 2018 that Correctional Service Canada didn't do enough to ensure its risk assessment tools were reliable for Indigenous people and ordered it to look into whether they're biased. Two years before that, the Office of the Auditor General found that Indigenous men received the worst security level scores more frequently than other inmates. At the time, the CSC said it would look at designing Indigenous-specific risk assessments. It still hasn't been done. Continuing to talk about Canada's legal system. Since 2017, there's been a bill kind of just floating around in Parliament that requires sexual assault training for federally appointed judges. Ironically enough, the author of that bill was former interim Conservative leader Ronna Ambrose. That bill has now been amended by MPs to also include training on, quote, systemic racism and systemic discrimination. All thanks to the chair of the Parliamentary Black Caucus, Liberal MP Greg Fergus. This is a great thing. But some, for some reason, are worried that it imposes further pressure on judges, though they're supposed to be politically independent. Nonsense. I Like, full stop. Now, we, uh, we touched on Canadian love for Trump in the Conservative Party, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, right, Patience? Yeah. We've got a bit more news on that front. Um, the love just keeps flowing. The majority of Canadians can't stand Trump for good reason. So why on earth do so many Canadian conservatives feel so differently? The two latest to publicly share their love for Trump were conservative Senate leader Don Plett and former conservative, now independent Senator Lynn Bayek. Plett did so through a speech in the Senate 
while Bayak illegally donated to his campaign through a false address in New York. Wow. <laughs> but conservatives care about ethics, right? Jumping to the Canadian economy, Deputy PM and Minister of Fixing Everything, Krista Freeland, laid out her vision for the next two years as Canada continues to grapple with the fallout from COVID. And yes, that vision includes record spending. She alluded to some people being concerned about the level of spending the Trudeau government is doing, but responded to them saying that things have changed. People aren't as scared of deficits anymore, which is demonstrably true, considering that Justin Trudeau won not one, but two elections. The first by explicitly campaigning on deficit spending, and he won the second, even after surpassing those same deficit spending limits. It's also the reason why Andrew Scheer's conservatives waited until the last minute to outline how much they'd cut if they were in power instead. But anyway, back to the point. Freeland makes the case for more spending, saying we can afford it. She points to the fact that before the pandemic, Canada had the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7, and now interest rates are at historic lows and the government's borrowing costs are currently at their lowest level in 100 years. At the same time, our economy is expected to continue to grow. For reference, in 1995, when Canada was going through deep and painful austerity brought on by Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin, the interest on our debt was 6% of GDP. Right now, it's only 0.9% of GDP. So the spending we're doing and that we'll continue to do will be necessary to keep Canadians from falling into further precarity since some businesses may never reopen. Further, we need to fix the social gaps laid bare by COVID, especially those affecting Black and Indigenous people. I'm curious to know what the Conservatives had to say about this. So this is kind of what I was talking about before, patients, where there's a a shift happening on the right, and it's interesting to take note of. Aaron O'Toole had a response, and his vision was laid out two days after Freeland laid out hers in a theme titled, The New or His New Conservative Vision. O'Toole presented a vision that was a pretty strong departure from typical conservatism with a focus on, get this patience, fighting uh, inequality through labor rights. What? He also says he'd emphasize employment data alongside GDP, and he wants to see private union membership grow again, since that was, quote, an essential part of the balance between what was good for business and what was good for employees. Today, that balance is dangerously disappearing, end quote. Thoughts on the visions laid out by Freeland and O'Toole. Does O'Toole know what party he joined? (laughs) I appreciate it, though. I I appreciate, like, Aaron O'Toole sounds like like a new Democrat, to be honest. Like, new Democrats have been the ones on strengthening unions and and strengthening the, the, like, unionization across the country because... Just like O'Toole apparently knows, it's it's good for business and it's good for employees. Mm-hmm. What the conservatives have done historically is eat away at that at what is good for employees and just kept what was good for business. He's, you know, my opinion is that he's saying the right stuff, but large businesses and the rich typically vote conservative because they know a conservative government will enable them to continue to deepen inequality. And we can see clear examples of conservatives saying one thing before being elected, then changing their tune afterward, like Doug Ford saying he would let universal basic income, the the pilot that was happening rather, conclude before making judgments on it, or saying that not one public sector employee would lose their job under him despite his sustained cuts to public services and the record number of job losses that have come into being. Don't even get me started on uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta. So, you know, I don't believe him. 
And I don't want to wait to see, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Speaking about unionization, workers at two Indigo stores have voted to unionize. There are now three unionized Indigos in Canada, and it's possible, even likely, that more locations will do the same. Indigo, for the record, responded to the unionization efforts with promises to improve wages and working conditions at stores across the country. Now, this is great news because unions are extremely important. We kind of just talked about that, but I'll go into a bit more detail. Before the rise of the labor movement, working conditions were absolutely dreadful and downright dangerous. On top of that, workers were treated even more disposable than we are today. There was no minimum wage. There were no health and safety regulations to keep people from dying or becoming maimed on the job. And of course, there was no compensation when such accidents did occur. There were no paid holidays, nor was there overtime pay. So workers could be exploited even more than they are today. There was no maternity or paternity leave. Got a baby? Too bad. And finally, there was no protection from discrimination or harassment. Sounds like the U.S. Yeah, that's right. In short... Unions raise the standard of living for all workers. What we need to do is strengthen unions so they are as strong as they were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because in those times, things were a lot more fair. Consider that. In this week's Black, Blackity Black news, a video coming out of Calgary shows police manhandling a young woman. Many of you might have seen this video making its rounds online, and although the video is from December 13th, 2017, it does show a police officer escorting a woman, Dahlia Caffey, into an arrest processing unit to have her picture taken. Caffey is seen standing against the wall with her hands handcuffed behind her back when the police officer attempts to remove a scarf from her head, at which time she kind of pulls away. The police officer was charged in 2019, at which time he was suspended with pay, but the reason why I think the video is going viral now is because he is back again working with the Calgary Police Service. Mm-hmm. In a statement to Global News regarding why the officer is back on the job, the Calgary Police Service said, quote, due to court delays related to COVID-19, Constable Dunn's duty status was revisited and updated such that he returned to work restricted to non-operational functions while awaiting disposition on this charge. To ensure the court process is not unfairly influenced, we are limited in regard to completing our internal disciplinary process until the court process is finished. Our internal process will determine whether the force was reasonable under police service regulations and Calgary Police Service's policies and training. Depending on the outcome, this process determines what discipline up to and including dismissal is appropriate. So uh, my question for you, Curtis, is Could is there... Uh, any circumstances where that use of force was appropriate? No. No. I mean, the video's clear. No. <laughs> like, what were you going to do? Why did you have to do that? No, he, he was he was just big mad. He was clearly big mad. And, um, you know, like, what is he mad at? I don't know. There probably was a racist undertone to that. And here's the thing, right? Uh, did you see that video of the Toronto realtor just this week that put out an incredibly racist video mocking, like, dread culture no trying to show a home that's exactly what happened literally this idiot realtor he put on a you know a fake rasta hat and dreads and he tried to mimic jamaican (laughs) i don't even know it's so dumb what this guy did he's making fun of jamaican culture of rasta culture now i tie that to this video and the fact that this cop 
I mean, he seems to have been disrespecting Dahlia because of her hair and the fact that it was wrapped, etc. So on the one hand, we have just generally through this cop, most white people disrespect black hair, black hairstyles, but they like to joke and have fun with our culture. I mean, I don't even know if if Dahlia was wrapping her hair for religious reasons, right? We don't know. We don't know that. The insensitivity, the use of force, just completely, like, unacceptable. Come on. Completely. The good news is that, you know, I've seen, at least on social media, a lot of white people in particular, you know, just pointing out just how disgusting the video was. So I think that this is going to be one of those cases one of those situations that if it doesn't lead to change, it'll at least add to the to society's psyche about the need for change. Yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Moving on. Walter Wallace Jr., a 27-year-old black man, was shot and killed during a confrontation with police in front of his mom in West Philadelphia on Monday after officers responded to a report of a person with a weapon. Wallace Jr. had nine children and worked as an Uber Eats driver and was an aspiring rapper, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. His wife, Dominique Wallace, gave birth this week following Wallace's death. Oh my God. Philadelphia Police Sergeant Eric Gripafter told CNN affiliate KYW that officers saw a man with a knife who was brandishing it and waving it erratically. Police said that Walter Jr., whom his family said had bipolar disorder and was known to the authorities, ignored orders to drop a knife. Quote, we plan on releasing audio of 911 calls and body cam footage of the discharging officers in the near future, says the Philadelphia police. First, they said they want to meet with Walter Wallace Jr.'s family. And although previous police shootings of black men in Philadelphia have sparked protests, the department has never before released released police footage of a shooting by an officer, uh, later adding that the family of Walter Wallace uh, were due to see the footage later on Thursday. So just to be clear, the videos that are going around online are videos from a, a a number of people who were standing by at the time of the shooting. But what the Philadelphia police is waiting to release is the body cam footage from the officer who shot Wallace himself. The police chief of the Philadelphia police admitted that her department lacked a mental health unit or any consistent way to coordinate phone calls with medical specialists. 
And Philadelphia's mayor, Jim Kenney, said that the city would improve coordination with mental health services, saying, quote, we have limited resources and we have a large number of people with problems. We need to do a better job, end quote. What happened on Monday night led to a series of protests and riots happening across the city of Philadelphia. As of Wednesday night, there had been 23 injured officers, 297 reported incidents of looting, and 81 arrests were made on Tuesday alone. Walter Wallace Jr.'s family is seeking justice, but very interestingly, they are not advocating for the officers who killed the 27-year-old Black man to be charged with murder. Any thoughts on what's happening in Philadelphia, Curtis? You know, my um, my thoughts are essentially are, um, I don't understand why Philadelphia doesn't have a system that coordinates mental health responses um, in this day and age. I mean, uh, on the one hand, it's like, you see what's been going on for at least since at least the summertime and you guys haven't implemented anything to kind of deal with that. On the other hand, I, I do have to acknowledge that the United States is, is um, uh, what did Trump say about all those, those other countries is a uh, shithole. So, <laughs> so, so especially under Trump, um, he's refusing to send much needed resources in terms of money to municipalities, to states, um, so that they could, you know, make the necessary investments. And so all, all I'm saying is I think that there is, apart from the fact that obviously there is widespread systemic racism and these a lot of these cops just want to kill black people, it's a little harder to get to a place where the necessary fixes are implemented quickly because of the dysfunction of the U.S. political system. I think it's valid. What you're saying is that Canada has a system for that. It's called equalization payments. I mean, we're, we're dealing with systemic racism, but we're also dealing with just relative deprivation. So mm-hmm. black people are not treated as badly in California because California has money to kind of throw a couple ways. Uh, Agreed. Whereas in Philadelphia, where even the white people are poor, like, <laughs> like there, there's, there's definitely the, the systemic um, racism prevents the, the, the money from definitely getting to the communities that need it most. So I think it's totally legitimate what you're saying. So. And the racism just keeps going on and on. Kids are even being harassed at school. An elementary school in Toronto's Beaches neighborhood says one of its black students was assaulted by a man in the neighborhood. The principal of Glen Ames Senior Public School on Williamson Road told parents that on Monday afternoon, a student was walking to his home when a man approached him and uttered, quote, anti-Black racist comments at the student and physically assaulted him. Other students and a staff member who witnessed the altercation intervened and provided assistance to the student. Thank goodness. But uh, also the student didn't suffer any serious injuries in the encounter. I'm sure that young man or young woman, that young person is traumatized by by the incident. And um, apparently uh, the, the principal said that police arrived at the scene quickly and arrested the man. Uh, she said that one of the conditions imposed on the man that was arrested was that he keep at least 100 meters from school property. Although I think that this is kind of a start to have a little bit of a restraining order from the, the person and the school. That that child still has to walk home from school. And this incident happened while the child was walking home from school. I think it's important to continue to include these these stories in in the podcast just to remind you guys that even in one of Toronto's richest neighborhoods, the beaches, black students, black people 
are still being harassed by grown ass white people. I mean, it sounds to me like they're being harassed by grown ass white bears. So we need to start carrying some uh, some bears. <laughs> In good news this week, a Toronto carpenter, a, a black. Let me start with that. A black Toronto carpenter is building insulated mini shelters for homeless people. I think that we've all kind of talked a little bit about how COVID-19 has really unveiled some of the inequalities that exist in our society. And homelessness is is really quite a big one. We all know that frigid temperatures in the city of Toronto can produce life or death situations for people experiencing homelessness. 128 people died within city limits last year due to those frigid temperatures. Experts estimate that more than 10,000 people in Toronto are currently experiencing homelessness. So Khalil Sievright, a 28-year-old carpenter, a 28-year-old black carpenter, (laughs) has devised what seems like a suitable solution, at least for now, while government officials figure their shit out. The whole thing costs about $1,000 in new material and takes Sievright about eight hours to construct. Though he's been like happily giving them away for free since he started building them about last month. Kathy Crow, a longtime street nurse, said that the city vastly underestimates the number of people who sleep outdoors, and she expects that figure to be higher than ever this winter as more people run out of COVID-19 emergency benefits and lose their homes. Any thoughts on this beautiful young Black man who is literally building homes for the homeless? Literally trying to save lives on these streets. Um, You know, Khalil, I heard him say that, uh, first of all, yeah, like, sustained and huge thanks and praise to Khalil. And um, Khalil was mentioning that uh, the reason why he's able to construct these homes is because of the donations that he receives every single month. So I guess we also have to say, you know, sustained praise to those who are also providing those donations. Um, He did also point out that what he's doing is not nearly enough. He's just doing what he personally can. He is really advocating for governments to do more. They need to do more. The city needs to do more. So that's what we need to be advocating for. Okay, well, this week on the podcast, I, I, I reached out or I had a conversation with a former colleague of mine. And this is really largely in response to formative allyship, the, the National Hockey League, and the Hockey Diversity Alliance. In the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to have more like conversations about some of the issues. It started with when we talked about Ice Cube. And, and this week, I, I think it's, it's a good practice to bring someone else to respond to what, what we know was very harsh criticism of the, the NHL. So this week, I am so, so happy to invite Mozine Hasham, the founder and executive director of Hockey for Youth, onto the podcast. Welcome, Mo. Thanks for having me, Patience, and I'm so glad that we're connecting, actually connecting, and I love what you and Curtis are doing on the drip. So so tell me exactly, what do you do at, at Hockey for Youth? Yeah, so Hockey for Youth is a charitable foundation, and we our mission is to foster social inclusion for newcomer and high-priority youth. And the reason why we do that is because hockey, in and of itself, we consider it Canada's game but it is a very exclusive sport. And there's several reasons behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if a child wants to play hockey at the age of, between the ages of 11 and 17, the family is going to spend upwards of, uh, or starting at $5,000 wow. to play hockey. 
right? And so that includes your cost of equipment, your registration fees, maybe there's some tournaments you're going to play in. And then as you go up through the ranks, you actually could spend upwards of twenty or $30,000 a year just to play one year of hockey. Well, I, I love, I love, you're obviously very passionate about hockey and I love that you called it Canada's game. And, you know, I think that that's kind of a great point of departure for this conversation because if it is indeed Canada's game, uh, then why has it been so hostile to people who are not white men, white cisgender, perhaps even heterosexual men? What's the problem? the history of the game has been ingrained in this culture of, you know, kind of this male dominating, you know, that kind of aggressive male attitude. And so that's the lens through which we view hockey, but there is this movement of gender. Um, If you look at minor hockey rates for girls, that's growing. If you look at minor hockey rates for boys, that's declining. Um, So I think that's one thing. Now, when you look at the the other side of of this um, discussion in terms of race, um, yeah, they, like kids of color, uh, me being one of them, uh, we haven't necessarily had an easy time uh, being accepted into the game. And uh, just to give you a little bit of backstory, so my parents moved to Canada in 1972 as refugees from Uganda. Uh, I was born in Vancouver, and at the age of six, a neighbor of ours who still lives across the street from my mom said to my parents, I have this equipment, my son is outgrown it, you should put your youngest son into hockey. So I was at that right age, that, wow. at that age of six. Mm-hmm. I played right through university. Now, my experiences, I would say, were pretty decent through hockey in the sense that my team was quite diverse. Uh, there was a number of Indo-Canadian players that I played with. And, and even through university, I had, you know, kind of friends of color that were playing. But Playing against other teams, uh, you know, it wasn't necessarily like that. It was mainly white kids. And then as you went up through the ranks, um, there there wasn't necessarily anyone that looked like you as you played at a higher and higher and higher level. So given all that we've kind of seen happen around the world since June with Black Lives Matter and a real push to, um, to, to get some of these major sport leagues to become more anti-racist and just allow for 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 people to participate what what exactly is is happening with with the National Hockey League and do you think that um the NHL is moving as fast as the NBA has or Major League Baseball has in North America yeah, look, I think there are certainly, um, you know, challenges that exist at the National Hockey League. And I'm actually going to take you back to November of last year. So November of, of 2019, uh, you know, Don Cherry makes, you know, these insensitive remarks about other oh, people. Oh, yeah. I and, forgot and about that. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so when, you, when you really peel back the, the onion, as it were, that's kind of where things started in hockey. He had always said things that were controversial, right, about French Canadians and uh, people of maybe not necessarily he was talking about people of color, but he was talking about Europeans, Mm -hmm. right? And again, it was that machismo, that bravado, that the only people that should be playing hockey are those Canadians, those good old boys that come from Kingston and London and Mm -hmm. and other parts of Canada. So the narrative had always been there. And it was always 
support it. But he stepped over the line when he started to talk about those other Canadians and not wearing poppies, right? And that's when people started saying, well, hold on a second here. Who are you actually talking about? And, and, and that's where it all started. And for me on that level, uh, I, I've done media interviews about what we're doing at Hockey for Youth to make things inclusive. But this was the first time that I was called to talk about this particular instance. And then I was called to talk about what Akeem Aliou talked about, which was facing racism. And, and at, the, at the hands of an NHL coach, or at that time, uh, a minor league coach. And then there was the conversation around his experience with racism and bullying. So everything really started to kind of move at the, at the hockey level back in November. Now, when you fast forward many months later, and you start to see issues around um, anti-Black racism and police violence and social injustice, everything kind of culminated then in the summertime with the National Hockey League not seeing what was happening in society. What I can tell you and what I can share with your listeners about the National Hockey League is there's a few things. Uh, I've just been appointed to their Youth Hockey Inclusion Committee. Now, there are other inclusion committees that the NHL has set up. And the whole idea behind these inclusion committees is they want to combat racism, sexism, homophobia, and other forms of discrimination. And it's a two-year appointment. Now, am I defending the National Hockey League? No. But what I am saying is I now have a seat at the table as a South Asian male who is bringing the game uh, the inclusion side of the game uh, and the experiences of the kids that I represent to the table to basically say to the league, we need to do more of this. And I will tell you that the league has been doing this. It's just been kind of under the surface. Okay. But before we got on this call, you said that a lot of things had changed in the last week or so or in the last couple of weeks what has been happening on the ground i was saying to my wife yesterday monica her name's monica by the way so i should say i was telling monica yesterday that the hockey world was on fire yesterday and in, not in a good way right uh we've had two very polarizing instances that are taken away from what the game is and can be about and so the first one is about this young man named mitchell miller So he's a hockey player from the University of North Dakota. He got drafted by the Arizona Coyotes. But the underlying story with Mitchell is that he was convicted as a teenager in high school of bullying and beating another high school student who's black and disabled. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this young man who... Uh, Mitchell was bullying. His name is Isaiah Meyer Crothers. And Isaiah and his family, when Mitchell got drafted, said, what is going on? Why would he have gotten drafted? And so, and the fact that Mitchell Miller has never apologized to Isaiah, the fact that every NHL team knew about Mitchell's background, the fact that the University of North Dakota knew about his background, the fact Mm. that USA Hockey knew about Mitchell's background and really didn't do anything about it. That's when hockey gets a bad name. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's not to say that Mitchell can't ever change his direction in life, but as a young man that's being guided by, I'm sure a lot of people in his corner mm-hmm. to not apologize to Isaiah, to not effectively say, Hey, I really hurt somebody. 
you know, that's, that's not a good look for hockey in general. And Arizona Coyotes then turned around after drafting him and a couple of days ago renounced the rights to draft him. No so, way. Yeah. But that's only after public pressure. I mean, that was awesome. I think we, we, I'm not sure how many of our listeners have insight into this movement because this movement has been maybe more cautious, but certainly a lot quieter than the other movements that have been happening in other major league sports. So I appreciate your insight and I, I appreciate that you're kind of a, a front runner, um, you know, by participating in the NHL's inclusion committee and by, you know, running an organization that is actively working to diversify the sport. I, I really, I, I see that, that you are part of this um, and I, we, we really appreciate your perspective on, on this issue. Now for things happening in the world, this Tuesday, of course, is the U.S. election and everyone is anxious to learn what the fate of the U.S. will be on November 3rd. Can we just, like, it's Tuesday. I know. There was a time where it's like, oh, this is happening two years from now. Yeah. Good Lord, time passes. <sighs> well, even though to us the reasons to vote Democrats seem really, really clear, Pretty clear. It, it is still important to recognize what the other side is thinking and, and feeling at this time. So let's talk about why mm -hmm. Trump's supporters love him. Uh, of course, first and foremost, because he's going to drain the swamp. Of course, right? Drain the swamp. Drain. I still don't know what that means, to be honest with you. I just, I just say it because uh, uh, they say it. Uh, but, but really, what, what Trump has accomplished in the last four years is slightly different from what he promised he was going to do. But they are still quite significant. He tilted the U.S. justice system all the way right. He has installed three conservatives to the Supreme Court. And remember, there are only nine positions. So that's a third of the Supreme Court that is now not even right, but I would say ultra right because they were appointed by Trump. Uh, as a result of Trump, the Supreme Court is two thirds conservative. And in addition to what he has done at the Supreme Court, because, you know, before you get to the Supreme Court, there are all these other federal courts that you have to sometimes that you have to get through. He has also installed another 200 judges to those courts, to those lower courts. So really, he has reshaped the U.S. justice system for decades to come, if not centuries to come. He has reduced taxes for corporations and small businesses, even though the, the changes that he did make really only benefit the, the richest Americans, but still a pretty significant change. He did renegotiate NAFTA, even though he went really, really hard at the beginning and then, you know, Freeland was like, get out of here. We got, we got fists too. <laughs> and started like throwing our own punches. But I mean, they, they did come hard at the beginning of NAFTA. And NAFTA did end up being renegotiated. I, I think it's up to, it, it depends on who you're speaking to um, before you'll, you'll kind of get a read on whether NAFTA worked in, in the U.S. interest or in the Canadian interest. Mm -hmm. He actually did restrict travel to America from Muslim majority countries. And I think that one's a big one in terms of Trump's base. They really, yep. they really didn't want Muslim immigrants or as many Muslim mm -hmm. immigrants. And they were quite mm -hmm. successful. Trump was quite successful in getting that done. Every single one of these promises really have tremendous appeal to his core base. You know, having a justice system that is aligned to the right, having reduced taxes for corporations, 
and restricting certain people from entering the, the, the country. These are huge things. Do, do you have any other kind of ideas as to why Trump supporters love him? Um, yes, I was thinking of, what is the word again that uh, most of them are, oh yes, that's what it is, racist. <laughs> Jumping to questions for the audience. Do you believe Aaron O'Toole when he advocates for conservatives to get more serious about inequality? Or do you think it's all smoke and mirrors? Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drift You. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fisson, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E, for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus.